Memorial Day, everybody. Um, I'm still her. I'm right her. And uh, I got a full show for you. So I will be leading with uh, a little bit of a talk about a Twitter fight that I got in. It's kind of crazy that I get got in a Twitter fight when I decry Twitter fights. I think they're so stupid and a waste of time. But anyway, um, I'll discuss that. It was with Jank Uger. Um, there was a writer by the name of Katha Pollitt from The Nation, and she said one of the craziest things you've ever heard about the election. Uh, we will talk about that. I got plenty of Joe Biden stuff, plenty of Trump stuff, some interesting news on a, a forecast for the election, which might surprise many of you. Um, and then later on in the show, some new facts on wealth and income inequality that'll just make your jaw hit the ground. Uh, it's getting worse and worse as this crisis rages on, as um, the pandemic and the economic depression moves forward. And um, later on, I got to go after Elizabeth Warren, and I got to go after Chris Cuomo and Andrew Cuomo for their propaganda fest that's been going on on CNN. So it is a full show. And um, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. So my friend Jenk Uger and I went at it on Twitter. Uh, I understand that it's ridiculous that I just fought on Twitter after telling you guys only last week that fighting on Twitter is an incredible waste of time. <laughs> I, I promise you, I absolutely hate from my core the idea of fighting on Twitter. I do think it's a total waste of time. And um, I, I actively go out of my way to avoid Twitter feuds. But one of the things he said as you're about to see, I couldn't help but respond because I couldn't believe 
what I was reading. Now, you know, again, Jen Huger is a friend of mine, and um, we co-founded Justice Democrats together. There's a lot of agreement between us, but I guess you could say where there are disagreements, there are massive disagreements. Russiagate, for example, I was a strong opponent of it all along. Um, he was a proponent of it all along. He since, you know, modified his position somewhat to say I'm not with the Rachel Maddow type people. Uh, I have my own um, kind of argument in favor of it. But, you know, I would argue that when you look at the conclusion of the Mueller report and what's happened since, who was right on that? That's not what this segment is about, so I digress. Um, but here's, here's what he said on Twitter, and here's my reaction to it. It's about Joe Biden. So he said, Joe Biden has a thousand problems. I'll fight like hell to move him toward progressive positions. I'll almost certainly help to primary him in 2024. But not voting is still taking action. I agree, not voting is taking action. It doesn't make you morally superior to those who make hard choices. It might do the opposite. Now, the thing that stuck in my craw was that last part. He says, it doesn't make you morally superior to those who make hard choices. It might do the opposite. I'm not claiming, and nobody I know who's either not voting or voting third party is claiming that it makes us morally superior. I never said that. I never would say that. And also the idea that, well, you're not really making hard choices. How do you know? How do you know? How do you know how long it took me to come to this conclusion that I'm either not going to vote or vote third party? How do you know what I went through and, and what my calculations were and what my standards were and what my breakdown was? How do you know it wasn't a hard choice? In fact, I would argue it was a very hard choice. It took me a long time to think about it and run through it and really calculate it. So it is a hard choice. Whether somebody votes for Trump, votes for Biden, votes for nobody, votes for the Green Party, votes for the Peace and Freedom Party, votes for the Libertarian Party, just because they don't come to the same conclusion as you doesn't mean that it wasn't a hard choice and that a lot of thought didn't go into it. In fact, a lot of thought did go into it. Anybody who's familiar with this show knows because I've explained in painstaking detail how and why I came to the conclusion I came to. So the idea, and this is what gets under my skin, he's making it sound like his decision to vote for Joe Biden is just like really brave or something. And, you know, I'm not going to judge him for doing what he's doing because he has his reasons. But that's a lot – I'm giving him a much more charitable interpretation than he's willing to give us or me and people like me who are deciding to either not vote or vote third party. So he's got this grandiose view of what he's doing, that I'm making hard choices, and the idea is just like, well, obviously, since you don't agree with me, it wasn't a hard choice for you. That's just silly and very self-serving. And I just noticed that my shirt is not fully buttoned. But anyway – um, and then the line at the end there where he says it might do the opposite. So I was, you know, I was taken aback by this and I meant this, I tweeted this at him not to be snarky. It was a serious question on my part. I said, wait, so I might be morally inferior for not picking one of the two corrupt war criminals. Am I reading this right? You know, again, I wasn't trying to be snarky. I was genuinely inquiring because what Jenk is doing here is like a textbook example of what's called voter shaming. You don't agree with me. Here's my position. I'm, you know, morally superior. You're morally inferior. That's the heavy implication of what he's saying there. So I'm asking him, I'm like, hold on now. Are you like 
shaming and insulting everybody who doesn't agree with you on this? And his response is something else. His response is, yes, you are reading that right. George Bush and Adolf Hitler are both war criminals. Are you saying that not voting for either in an election between the two is, morally, is the morally correct position? Because it most definitely isn't. Come on the show and let's have a real discussion on it. Now, I responded to that and said the following, why would I debate if I'm morally inferior? Can I call you a wife beater and then tell you to debate me on it? Not voting is an option. Stop pretending it isn't and shaming those who choose it. We aren't shaming you. While we're on hypotheticals, David Duke versus Richard Spencer, go. Now, I'm floored at the fact that he said this because his response was, yes, I'm calling you morally inferior for disagreeing with me on how to vote. That's what he said. That's not what I said. He started it by saying, yes, you are reading that right. So I am morally inferior for choosing to not vote or vote third party because I couldn't bring myself to vote for Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Well, Cenk, if I'm not mistaken, his commentary back when Hillary made like the basket of deplorables statement, he was like, wow, that's a really dumb idea and very counterproductive to the idea of creating more Hillary Clinton voters. So even if Cenk's goal here is to create more Biden voters, why would you go around calling everybody who doesn't already agree with you morally inferior? You think people are going to, you think the reaction people are going to have? Now, putting me aside, I have my own reasons for taking my position, but you think regular people are going to hear that? Cenk Uger calls me morally inferior for not agreeing with him, and now I can't wait to go join his team. Obviously, it's counterproductive to your goal of creating more Biden voters, and I'm assuming that is his goal here, but I'm stunned. I'm floored at the fact that a guy like him doesn't realize that this is a basket of deplorables type comment. This is like a really smug, condescending, insulting, shaming, look down my nose at you type response. Now, listen. When we're having this conversation about who to vote for, we should have it in reality. So if you want to have the hypothetical conversation and you want to, you know, test our theories by extrapolating to extreme scenarios and extreme analogies, I'm down for that conversation. But the fact that he immediately went to Hitler and George W. Bush. Now, in his analogy, who's Hitler? Trump. Which actually gets to, like, one of the main things drives me crazy that a lot of Democratic voters don't understand, which is that Trump is not Hitler. (laughs) He's not Hitler. He's not Hitler. Sorry. He's really bad. I'll grant you he's really bad. I'll grant you he has blood on his hands, and I can explain in detail how that's the case, whether it's the drone war, the continuation of the wars that are already going on, or uh, what he's doing with Cuba, what he's doing with Iran, what he's trying to do with Venezuela. We can get into all that. But Donald Trump is not Hitler. So he's actually perfectly encapsulating something that I think is wrong with this mindset, which is a lot of Democratic voters tend to overstate how bad Trump is. That's not to say Trump isn't very, very bad. That's only to say he's not Adolf Hitler. They overestimate how bad Trump is, and they underestimate how bad Biden is. I've seen it so many times. And they just struggle to grasp the fact that there are many of us out there who don't think Trump is Hitler. We don't agree with you that he's the embodiment of every single evil thing ever, ever. 
He's not actively on purpose committing a genocide, and that's the point of what he's doing. That's not it. So, if you, again, if you want to have that hypothetical conversation, we can have the hypothetical conversation. But I prefer to deal in reality, in empirical reality, and to talk about the election as such, to talk about the election as it is, because then you understand where I'm coming from and people like me are coming from a hell of a lot better. While he entertained the hypothetical conversation, I gave him a hypothetical, David Duke versus Richard Spencer. Now, why did I go to that? Because that's presumably one where he would say, I don't want to vote for either one of them. Exactly. <laughs> so I don't, I don't understand for the life of me where this idea comes from, that they just try, try to erase the idea. Like, you, you're not allowed to sit out of the election, or that's not an option on the menu. But it is an option on the menu. Why, are we, why does everybody pretend when they're trying to get you, force you to vote for one of the two options that that's not an option? Of course it's an option. Literally 46% of the country took that option in 2016. Now, we can try to understand why they have that position and where they're coming from, or you can wag your finger and say, God, you're morally inferior for doing what you did. Okay, well, good luck with your next election, and I hope your strategy of shaming people and insulting them comes to fruition for you and works out. And then the other thing is, I, don't under I never understood. What is I've gotten a bunch of requests to debate the idea of voting Biden, not voting Biden, or voting, voting Biden versus voting third party, voting Biden or sitting out. I've gotten a bunch of requests to debate that. I don't understand why people think this is like a debatable thing. I, I have my own subjective beliefs about what's the most important, what are my top priorities. Biden either meets those standards or doesn't meet those standards to earn my vote. What's there to debate? Your, your you know, reasons for voting, your criteria, your standards are going to be different than mine. Even if they're similar, they're going to be different. You're going to have different reasons and motivations for determining why to vote. So when people are like, let's debate on it, I'm like, what is there to debate? There's, what are you going to do? You're going to try to uh, logic chokehold me into, oh, oh, you got me. Oh, now I have to vote for Joe Biden. What is that? I mean, it's such a silly, it's, it's such a ridiculous thing where the, the implication is, well, obviously, I could try to, like, jujitsu you into changing your standards or something and then, and then voting based on my standards. And, and this gets to a major point that I've, I've made over and over, which is I've told you guys a million times, I'm not trying to convince anybody. I'm not out here proselytizing and evangelizing and saying, you must agree with me on not voting at all or voting for a Green Party or third party or whatever. I'm not doing that. I'm just telling you what my standards are, how Biden and Trump don't meet those standards, so I can't vote for one of them, and this is what I'm going to do. That's a lot different than proselytizing and evangelizing and me saying, I'm not voting for Biden, and you shouldn't either. I'm not saying that. I don't care what you do, which gets to the main point of, of what Jenk is doing here. And this, another tweet that, I, I didn't cue this up for you, but I'll just read it to you. Because then he said, this wasn't tweeted at me, but this was like a subtweet. He says, for every leftist who thinks it's brilliant to sit out this election, I'm genuinely curious. What's your end game? Okay, Trump wins again. And then what happens? When do you pop out of the birthday cake and yell, surprise, as you take over the country? How will that work? Can't wait. Now, I love how he thinks this is like a gotcha. As if like, aha, I got you guys. But I never said it was a strategy. In fact, I've been crystal clear from day one. I'm doing this based on principle. 
Something that Jenk Uger, of all people, should understand, because that's why he's off of MSNBC. He was offered a, a weekend time slot, and he said, no, I'm not going to do it. Why? Because he knew that they were trying to basically get him to tamp down his criticism of Obama and the Democrats. And so he said, as a matter of principle, I'm not going to do a show if I can't tell the truth and go after the Democrats. And so I'm not going to take the job, even though I was offered more money and a weekend spot to do a show one day a week. He did that off of principle. If you asked him at the time, hey, what's your strategy in doing this? He'd be like, what do you, strategy? What do you mean strategy? I'm doing it because I think it's the right thing to do. Bingo, Jank. I'm doing it because I think it's the right thing to do for me based on my standards, based on my criteria that I've gone through on this show a thousand times over. There's no strategy. And I've got to be honest with you. I think that's a lot more intellectually honest than having a strategy that ultimately will 100% fail and is delusional. And I mean that with all due respect, because the idea that like, okay, well, first we'll vote for Biden. And then what we're going to do is we're going to fight him on day one and push him left. Okay, but he's not going to go left. He's not going to listen to you. We have a freaking 40 year track record with a record that's as long as a novel where he shows you time and time again who he is. He's for the Patriot Act. He's for the Iraq war. He's for NAFTA. He's for TPP. He's for the Grand Leach-Bliley Act, which repealed Glass-Steagall. On every major issue where Joe Biden could have shown spine and did the right thing, he didn't. He did the wrong thing, and he was with the Republicans. So I honestly think it's delusional if you say, I'm gonna, I'll support Biden, and then I'll push him left, and then I'll try to make him do what I want him to do. I would have a lot more respect for the position if it was just a bare-bones argument where it's like, Literally, no, I'm just doing harm reduction, and I'm doing it because I think Joe Biden is better on the issue of abortion. I think Joe Biden is better on the issue of the courts. I think Joe Biden is better on the issue of climate change. There's a handful of issues where Biden is better, and so all I'm doing, plain and simple, is harm reduction, and that's it. I'm not going to tell myself that this is part of some grand master strategy to take over the country, because having Biden in office will 100% hurt the left. No doubt about it. It could solidify neoliberal corporatist rule for another couple decades because whoever his VP is could be the next president. I would have a lot more respect for the argument if it was intellectually honest and it was like, well, we lose either way. If Trump wins, we lose, obviously. If Biden wins, we lose, obviously. So I'm just doing harm reduction, bro. But that's not his argument. <laughs> his argument is not harm reduction. His argument is like, we're going to get Biden in there and then we're going to fight him on day one. We're going to push him left. The task forces are going to have an impact. I've seen his commentary on the task force. He thinks it's like, you know, something that's positive. I don't agree with you. I think it's total window dressing. I think we lose whether Trump wins or whether Biden wins. And I don't want to vote for a corrupt war criminal. Now, you might disagree with that. That's fine. That's fine. I'm not going to judge you on that. I'm not going to. I think I genuinely don't believe in voter shaming to the extent that even if somebody votes for Trump, I think you have to hear them out as to why they vote, voted for Trump to determine what their motivations were and if it made sense or not. If somebody tells you, hey, I live in the Rust Belt and my job was outsourced and I voted for Trump because he said he'd keep our jobs here, well, that guy's a lot different than somebody who says, I voted for Trump because he's racist and I'm a racist too and I want to do terrible things to Muslims and Mexicans. Those are two very different, you know, ideologies and reasons for doing something. But in Cenk Uger's conception here, you know, his idea is, no, if you decided to sit out or vote third party, number one, you didn't make a hard choice. Hilarious. And number two, you're morally inferior. And debate, debate me on it. <laughs> what? Can you, like, calling me, 
calling me morally inferior and then saying debate me on it. Do you not see how ridiculous? That's like me saying, hey, man, you're a wife beater. Now debate me on that. He, of course, he'd be well within his rights to be like, piss off. I'm not going to debate that. What a ridiculous thing. You bring up an absurd notion with a character attack and then tell me to debate you on it. Are you insane? That's my reaction on this. Morally inferior, but oh, let's debate on it. <laughs> what? So um, it's, it's stunning, man. I don't, there is no strategy. What I have is a complete and utter acknowledgement that the left loses if Trump wins. The left loses if Biden wins. There is no winning. We got to take the L and walk away. Now, the reason why I'm not voting for Biden, as I've explained a thousand times, and I'll explain a thousand more, is I need to be convinced he would fight for at least one or two of my top five issues. Medicare for all, free college, living wage, end the wars, and UBI. I don't believe he will fight for any of them. He's on the record as no to Medicare for all and no to free college. He wants to do a stupid means testing thing, which I despise from my core, and he's already pre-compromising on my position, which means he'll compromise even further. I can go on and on on that front. Uh, the only one he's even nominally in favor of is raising the minimum wage, and I don't believe him. I don't think he's going to do it. So he doesn't pass that very lenient litmus test of one or two of my top five issues. That's why I'm not voting for him, because he doesn't meet my very bland, very reasonable, very lax standards. And I was so kind, I even made exceptions, as you guys all know, because I've brought this up a thousand times. I said that if he picks Bernie or Nina for VP, I'll suck it up and vote for him, even though I still don't think he's going to do any of my issues. At least there'll be a voice in the room that's pushing him in the right direction. He didn't do that. And then the third thing I said was, okay, well, if Bernie gets tangible concessions in the form of executive orders within the first 100 days, then I'll vote for him. He could have given him a list of 10 executive orders. Maybe we could have gotten five of the executive orders. And Bernie, but he had to have the threat of walking away. Hey, if you don't do these, I'm going to walk away. You're on your own versus Trump. But he would never do that because Bernie's weak. And he's like, I'm going to vote for Biden no matter what. So you gave away all your leverage. You squandered all your leverage when you said that. So now we have nothing tangible. No executive orders within the first 100 days. The only thing the left is getting is task forces, which is nothing but placating and pats on the head. And he's not even going to do whatever they recommend. So I, at this point in time, I'm the ultimate pessimist. The only thing Jenk and I agree on is vote for down-ballot progressives. That's it. That's it. So, I mean, outside of that, I disagree with his conception of where we're at at the moment, with his conception of what we can make Joe Biden do. Um, and I think that this whole conversation is a little bit silly, honestly. And if you guys notice something, in all of these segments where I talk about this, I am literally 100% of the time never going on offense. I'm always going on defense. Why? Because I don't believe in voter shaming and insulting and trying to twist your arm and get you to do what I'm going to do. I don't believe in that. You have your own, you know, maybe your number one issue is climate change. And you think at the very least, we've got to get back in the Paris Climate Agreement. And so on that alone, you're like, I'm going to vote for Biden because he's obviously better on climate change. Duh. So, okay, fine. I'm Unlike what Jenk is doing here, I'm not going to say you're voting for a corrupt war criminal, then you're morally inferior. I'm not going to do that, which leads to my final point, which is, and again, this is one of my stronger arguments for my position, and I don't bring it up nearly as much as I should, but where I totally disagree with Jenk is I think that if you vote for somebody to some extent, you own what they do. You're indirectly responsible for the actions that they take. 
And that's why I voted for Obama in the 08 election, but I voted for Jill Stein in the 2012 election, because Obama started massacring innocent civilians with drones with a 90% civilian death rate. Now, some people look at, look at um, Obama doing that and they go, okay, I disagree with him on that, but I agree with him on all these other things, so I'm going to vote for him again. Okay, I don't, I don't look at it like that. I look at it like I'm indirectly responsible for all of those civilian deaths because I supported the guy who did those civilian deaths. And so I can't have that on my conscience. And so I didn't vote for him in 2012. Well, it's the same thing now. If I vote for Joe Biden, I'm co-signing the 200,000 minimum uh, innocent civilians who died in the Iraq war, the war which he supported. I'm co-signing the outsourcing of the jobs that he did with NAFTA and the ones that will happen because he wants TPV. I'm co-signing the Wall Street deregulation. I'm co-signing the Patriot Act and the illegal spying. So if you vote for Joe, you own what he does. You are not directly responsible for what he did, but you're indirectly responsible for what he does. And so I know how Joe's going to govern. He's going to be a neoliberal corporatist. He's going to outsource more jobs. He's going to do more war. He's going to be a continuation of the status quo. So I, I would own that. That would be on my conscience. I can't live with that on my conscience. And so I'm taking the option of either sitting out or voting third party. Now, it would be, it's the height of irony to call an argument against that position or to say that that position is morally inferior. Because as I just described to you, the main reason why I'm doing what I'm doing is actually morality and ethics. So, you know, I would just say to Cenk, dude, you're going to vote for Biden. I wouldn't argue, I wouldn't, I'm not going to come after you for voting for Biden. I'm not going to do that. You do whatever the hell you want to do. If you view it as harm reduction, okay, there is an argument there. There's a reasonable point to be had there. Fine. Um, But grant other people the same leeway and positive interpretation that I'm granting you. See, he knows knows me. And he knows that whatever I do, I have to have some decent reason for it. Even if he disagrees with the reason, he knows I have some reason for it. And that's why this was messed up morally inferior for not agreeing with me on voting for Biden. To not acknowledge that that's certainly a debatable issue, to not acknowledge that maybe that's not the right way of phrasing it, because again, I don't think (laughs) when it comes to debating, like there's got to be some gray area when I have standards that are solid, but to not acknowledge that that's up in the air, to not acknowledge that there is a case to be made for the side that you don't agree with, I think is really close-minded, really tunnel vision. And then, you know, I, I've been dragging on in this segment, but one more point here, and Green, Glenn Greenwald makes this point, and I think it's a brilliant point, which is, yeah, you could definitely argue that on many issues, Biden is better than Trump. Like I just said, climate change is better than Trump. Iran, he's going to be better than Trump because Trump is going full hawk on Iran. Um, social issues, the courts, like there's, Plenty of stuff where you could say Biden is genuinely better than Trump. Fair enough. Like, I'm not doing a full false equivalence here. But what if you prioritize one of the few issues where Trump is better than Biden, like TPP, where Trump is uh, killed the TPP. Now, he flipped provisions of it into the new NAFTA, so he's not perfect on the issue. But he's just better than Biden because Biden was for TPP in its original conception, which is as bad as it gets. What if that's something you prioritize? What if you know, you are of South Korean descent and Trump has been out there saying, 
I want to try to make peace with North Korea, and I'll meet with the leader of North Korea to try to make peace, and I'll sit aside as South Korea and North Korea negotiate and talk. When Biden said in the debates, no, I want to escalate. We shouldn't even talk to North Korea. So what if you prioritize detente on that issue and relaxing tensions, and Biden is clearly for going in the other direction? What about that? What if you prioritize that over other issues? What if you prioritize the First Step Act and the pardoning of Alice Johnson? Now, their issues are very few and far between where Trump is better than Biden, but there are enough there where, like, Trump suspended student loan payments as part of COVID-19. What if you say, I'm up to my eyeballs in student debt, and I know Trump was going to do this because he just did it. What if Biden reverses that? What do you want me to do? What, what if you prioritize one of the few issues where Trump is better than Biden? What then? Then, when you're making a harm reduction argument, it cuts in the other direction. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not arguing Trump is a lesser evil, because I think there are more issues where I agree more with Biden than Trump. But there are a handful of issues where I agree more with Trump. And my overall argument is that they're both beyond the pale, and they both don't meet the bare minimum standards. So, but I don't think, like, funny enough, he thinks he made the hard choice here, and he really thought through this. And then it's like, does it look like I didn't think through it? (laughs) I've just rambled on this topic for an extended period of time, giving my position. Like, do you think that this was all, I was all willy-nilly about this? I mean, it's just, it's really sad. And um, honestly, I expect better from Jenk Uger, especially since he knows me, to accuse me of being morally inferior for just disagreeing with him on this approach. So, yeah, I don't know what else to say other than it's disappointing. Okay. All right, let's move on to um a story that deserves a hell of a lot more coverage. So there's a writer by the name of Katha Pollitt from The Nation, and she said something that went viral for obvious reasons. Here's what she said. I would vote for Joe Biden if he boiled babies and ate them. He wasn't my candidate, but taking back the White House is that important. Four more years of Trump will replace what remains of our democracy with unchecked rule by kleptocrats, fascists, religious fanatics, gun nuts, and know-nothings. The environment, education, public health, the rights of voters, workers, immigrants, people of color, and yes, women, forget them. And not just the next four years, a Trump victory will lock down the courts for decades. I cannot believe that a rational person can grasp the disaster that is Donald Trump and withhold their support from Biden because of Tara Reid. Well, can you imagine somebody withholding their support because of the Iraq war, because of NAFTA, because of TPP? because of Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, which repealed Glass-Steagall, which led to the subprime mortgage crisis and Great Recession, because of the Patriot Act and the spying on all Americans in an unconstitutional fashion. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine people not being uh, in favor of Biden for reasons that you just laid out? Let me read through that one more time. Um, She says, four more years of Trump will replace what remains of our democracy with unchecked rule by kleptocrats, 
Biden is going to continue the rule by kleptocrats. Now, you could say he won't continue rule by religious fanatics, sure, but by kleptocrats and um, by know-nothings, as she says. Of course he's going to he's going to continue rule by them. So, I mean, this is the thing where it's like they pretend he doesn't have the marks against him that he has against him, and they make Trump out to be the next Hitler, and they make Biden out to be a, a polar opposite of him when he agrees with him on so many things. So I hate this, I hate this, you know, lying to yourself type stuff. Now, she brings up the Tara Reid allegation there and says, like, even if I thought Tara Reid did it, I'd still vote for Biden. Okay, but putting that issue aside, what about all the issues where Biden agrees with Trump that you're not even acknowledging that Biden agrees with Trump on? Like the rule by the kleptocrats. You just, let me just not address that. That's her move. But the part everybody's talking about, and it makes sense that they're talking about it, is I would vote for Joe Biden if he boiled babies and ate them. There was a line from Trump in 2016 that went viral when Trump said, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and not lose any voters. Across the board, everybody on the Democratic side was like, that's it. That proves, that shows, beyond any reasonable doubt, that we're dealing with total idiots on the other side. We're dealing with people who don't adjust to new evidence, don't change their mind based on anything. They, it, it's axiomatically true. It's like, it's religion to them. It's fundamentalism to them. We love Trump. That's the end of the conversation. It doesn't matter what he does. They're admitting it. Well, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I rest my case against this particular brand of Biden voter. She just said, I would vote for Joe Biden if he boiled babies and ate them. That's just as bad, if not worse, than Trump saying I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and not lose any voters. She's saying it. When Trump said it, it was him saying it. It wasn't a Trump supporter saying it. Now it's a Biden supporter, this one right here, saying, yeah, I don't care. Boiled babies and ate them got to be one of the most evil things you could ever do. He's like, yeah, I don't care. So, okay, this is like the hardcore internalization of the two-party system here, where you just overlook the flaws of your side. Like she's admitting, I'm a partisan hack tribalist. That's what I am. And it's quite an admission. It's quite an admission. You know, I'm somebody, I've argued for a long time, I don't think a third party is going to break through. We are stuck with a two-party system. But that doesn't mean I won't do my part where, like, you guys know I won't vote for a Democrat if they're not good enough. She's saying in no uncertain terms here, it doesn't matter what a Democrat does. I'll vote for them no matter what. Even to the extent of they could be a murderer, they could eat babies, which goes to show that ultimately they, they believe in nothing. Because as long as, as long as somebody calls themselves a Democrat, well, then the Democrat can do literally 100% what a Republican would do, and she'd be like, I don't care, they call themselves a Democrat, so I'm going to support the Democrat. It behooves me. I don't understand how these people don't see how ridiculous they are. How do you not see how ridiculous that is? How do you not see that ultimately you believe in nothing except party affiliation, rank partisanship, rank tribalism? You don't, you don't see that? You just said Biden could be a murderer and eat babies, and, you're to- and you'd be fine with it. You'd still vote for him. So that, that's an admission. He could do literally anything. And I would support him. He could, be, he could be the next Hitler, and I'd support him. Ironically, as they scream that Trump is Hitler, and so that's why we got to defeat him. But if you say, okay, can we defeat Hitler with a Hitler? They're like, yeah, I love my Hitler.
what is wrong with people? This is how far we've degraded in this country. This is how poor our critical thinking skills are. I mean, it's embarrassing. I really, like, I'm embarrassed for her. And she got dragged online relentlessly for obvious reasons. How could you say that? <laughs> I'm, so on some level, you're okay with somebody boiling babies and eating them alive as long as they nominally are part of the right group. She thinks she's so smart, but this is like caveman thinking. I, I'm seriously floored by this, and I don't think my commentary can do justice to, to what she just said here. Because in the same way, I think that Trump, the people who are diehard Trump supporters, no matter what, no matter what he does, I think that's stupid. I also think this is stupid. You have to evaluate why people do things. And there are many Biden voters who will give you a coherent argument as to why they're supporting Biden. And there are many Trump voters who will give you a coherent argument as to why they're supporting Trump. And you have to analyze on a case-by-case basis. But in the case of this woman, I mean, she's as immoral as it gets. Absolutely. This is as immoral as it gets. Like, even the thing where she brings up immigrants, like, oh, we got to look out for immigrants. He was part of the administration that deported the most immigrants in all of U.S. history. Again, that, like, she either doesn't know that, or if she did know it, she would rationalize it and say, yeah, but he's a Democrat, so it's okay. I mean, I'm pretty sure she'd say it's okay that he deported more people than anybody else, because she just said it's okay if he eats babies. So this, this is what believing in nothing looks like. This is what believing in nothing looks like. And this is what I mean, man, like, I, I seriously want to ask a question to all voters, all voters. What are your red lines? What are your red lines? Is there anything that Biden could do that would make you say, you know what, I can't, I can't vote for him. Is there anything? Is there anything? And what are your standards? So in other words, what are the things he has to do to get your support? Like, these are very simple questions. What are your standards? What are your principles? What are your red lines? And um, I don't think people can answer that question. I think a lot of people haven't thought about that question. And that's really embarrassing because then you're just voting. What are you voting based on? Just party affiliation? That's it? And to many people, the answer is yes. And I think that's pathetic. Okay, next. So Biden went on The Breakfast Club and spoke to Charlemagne the God. I always, it's always funny when you say his name, Charlemagne the God. Um, but anyway, he had a bunch of cringeworthy moments. One of the moments I think is not getting enough um, coverage. It's He's asked a question, and then he goes on the most incoherent rant you've ever heard. He talks about, like, carnivals and carnies, and, and it, it's just like he totally wandered into the wilderness and doesn't know where he is. And I, I'm not, I can't play that particular clip for you because I'm not sure. They might be pat- – I think I played a Breakfast Club clip once or twice before on the show, and I think they're, like, patent copyright trolls where, like, you know, they come after you for doing that. So – I can't play that video clip for you of Biden rambling incoherently, but I highly recommend you go watch the whole interview, and you'll see the spot. You'll notice the part of the interview I'm talking about. Because he's asked something, and he's just like, he starts babbling about things that are like, and then he gets angry too. It's like, wait, why are you getting angry? Like, it wasn't a moment that it made sense to get angry. It was just like he started yelling and babbling, and it was amazing. Now, nobody's talking about that part of the interview, um, but the part everybody is talking about is the one that I'm sure you've all seen by now, which is, Uh, Biden basically says, 
Like, if you're going to support Trump over me, you ain't black. And um, that went viral. Now, unsurprisingly, the Trump campaign is just waiting. They're sitting, sitting back in the weeds watching what's going on. They're just waiting to pounce anytime Biden says anything that's remotely controversial or bad or whatever. So they're already out with an ad on it. They're already selling T-shirts. T-shirts! Says something like, you ain't black. Oh. So here's the, the newest Trump ad on this. This is something. Right, so if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. He had not actually marched during the civil rights movement and kept telling the story anyway. I came out of the civil rights movement. I was one of those guys that sat in and marched and all that stuff. His aides went back to say, look, he was in office marching for the idea. That's not the word marching. <laughs> I was not out marching. If you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. They're going to put you all back in chains. You ain't black. Four kids are just as bright and just as talented as white kids. You ain't black. You ain't black. You ain't black. You ain't black. The most racist thing a person can tell me is that I'm supposed to choose something based on my race. You ain't black. The Trump team goes hard in the paint, son. They go hard in the paint. I think Bernie hurt Biden by going soft on him. I really do. I mean, first of all, I think if Bernie went hard on Biden, there'd be a much better chance that Bernie's the nominee. I mean, you ran in a primary where the number one issue was electability, and you didn't make the case that Joe Biden is just like Hillary Clinton, who just lost to Donald Trump. If I was Bernie, I would have been out there every day saying, you guys really want to run this experiment again? We just saw the so-called safe option lose to Trump. That was Hillary Clinton. Joe Biden is exactly like Hillary Clinton. Joe Biden is Hillary Clinton. You want to run that failed experiment again? America, if you want to make that decision, by all means. But you have somebody who could actually beat Trump, me. So Bernie went so soft on Biden, never brought up the line of, remember when um, Biden said to rich donors, nothing will fundamentally change under me? Bernie never brought that up. Bernie never brought that up. He was so limited in the kind of attacks he made, it was really sad and pathetic. Well, now you see, since Bernie went soft on Biden, now Biden isn't battle-tested. Think of, think of this stuff like working out. You have to break down the muscle to build it up. You have to put yourself through something in order to come out the other side of it stronger. Biden got, it was a cakewalk. It was a cakewalk. Nobody went after him aggressively. There were so many stronger arguments that could have been used against him. They weren't used against him. He literally lied on the campaign trail about going to, like, protest with Nelson Mandela or something. And the person he was with at the time was like, that didn't happen at all. He just lied. He just lies. And no, Bernie didn't call that out. So if Bernie went harder on Biden, there's a chance Bernie could have won. But also, if Biden won, he'd be a lot more battle-tested. Well, now he's on frickin', he's in the general election, he's on baby deer legs. He's got no idea what he's doing, and Trump's people are going hard in the paint. Now, let me tell you something. If Joe Biden wins this election, just so everybody understands, and he very well might, 
It's because we're in an economic depression and we have a pandemic that's killing 100,000 people. That's, if Biden wins, that's why Biden wins. Um, But if you were to remove those from the equation, and I get it, it's impossible to do that, but just hypothetically, if you were to remove those, then again, Trump goes back to being an 80% favorite in my opinion. I think this election was basically a lockup for Trump versus Biden before the pandemic, before the economic depression. And I think these ads show it. I mean, that's a devastating ad. But it might be the case that since we have a depression and since we have a pandemic, this stuff won't land as much. It just won't land as much. And by the way, I do think that with older black voters, they'll see this. They won't care because they came out for Biden in such tremendously high numbers that they'll brush, brush it off and just say, it's fine. Uh, they'll say, yeah, it was a joke. Biden was joking. Now, young black voters, that's a different story, because Biden did terrible with young voters in general, and I'm sure black voters were part of that as well, that he didn't do well with them. So will they show up in the general? Totally separate question. But again, Biden might not even need the young, because he's had a, a, a tsunami of older voters rush to the polls. So we'll see. It'll hurt him not getting the young voters. And this is a good ad, and you could say, hey, maybe it'll have an effective depressing turnout to one extent or another, but that's yet to be seen. But i got to be honest with you guys, I think all these other issues feel very ancillary to the bigger problems that we're facing, which is the pandemic and the economic depression. So it's like it, Trump could try to talk about all this other stuff, but it might just land on deaf ears because people are like, bro, I can't, I can't pay the bills. And you're talking about Biden on a freaking talk show? I don't care. So we'll see. But damn, the Trump people know how to go hard in the paint. If there wasn't a pandemic, if there wasn't an economic depression, then this, this election would be locked up because... These guys really, really, really know how to cut an ad. They know how to go for the jugular. But it just so happens to, to be beneficial to Biden that we're in a political era right now where that might not matter. And I'm going to tell the Biden people one more time, and I mean it from the bottom of my heart. If you want to win, hide them. Stop bringing them out. He doesn't have to do the Brexit Club. He doesn't have to do any interviews. Hide them. And let the Trump people and let the Bernie people say, where's Biden? Where's Biden? Where's Biden? doesn't matter. doesn't matter. If you can be honest. Say, yeah, he's not doing anything. Hey, like them apples. What are you going to do about it? You're going to do nothing. You're going to sit there and you're going to lose. And that might happen. I mean, that, honestly, I think that's his best path. Do nothing. Let Trump go out there and keep shoving his foot in his mouth. Let everybody whine and moan about it. Just do nothing because it worked in the primary. <laughs> the best predictor of future action is past action. You stayed at home. You did nothing. You won. So logic would dictate you stay at home. You do nothing in the general and you win. So we'll see. But that's a... That's a, a, a strong ad from, from Trump. Now, in terms of what Biden said, the you ain't black line, I really do think that this highlights the mentality that Biden and corporate Democrats have. That's like they're the living caricature of their parody to be. Like the argument from the right is the Democrats think they own the black vote. Like, they think they own it. They think they don't have to earn it. That's the argument from the right. Now, they're using it cynically because the right doesn't want to do anything to help black people either. But that's the argument they make. And then Biden goes out there and says, well, if you support Trump over me, you ain't black. So Biden's going to be the arbiter of what is and isn't black, who is and isn't black, based on how they vote. And he's saying only a real black person just knows, vote for the corporate Democrat, vote for me. That's like the perfect embodiment and encapsulation of, I feel like I am owed your vote and your allegiance. So you have to prove your worth to me. I don't have to prove my worth to you. And Charlemagne has done a series of interviews after where he says, he says exactly what I'm laying out right now, which is 
No, the onus is on you. You're the politician. You've got to make me come to you. Give me something to vote for. Not just what he's doing, which is something to vote against. Hey, Trump bad, vote for me. I'm not going to offer you anything, and I'm owed your vote. It's that mindset. It's that mindset. And by the way, he was super dismissive of Charlemagne. Biden has no idea how popular the Breakfast Club is, no idea how big the show is. And he was very dismissive, and towards the end he was like, all right, I got to go. His handler jumps in like, all right, he's got to go now. And Biden's like, yeah, I got to go. My wife's got to sing at like six. So dismissive, comes across as condescending. So I don't know how this is going to impact the race moving forward, but it does show he thinks he's entitled to the black vote. And even the arguments he uses are not true. He goes on to say, um, look at my record, man. I was endorsed by the NAACP every race I had. And the NAACP came out and said, no, you weren't. We don't endorse candidates. Look at my record, man. Yeah, your record has like the crime bill in it and you wrote it. (laughs) And that was abysmal for the black community. God, don't get me, uh, I was going to say don't get me started, but I'm already in the middle of a rant on this. So I've been started for a while, but I, I, I just, it's incredible to watch all this happen. We live in what feels like a movie with how all over the place everything is. Okay. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Biden did a CNBC interview last week. We'll talk about that and much more. Stay right there.
much. All right, we're back, y'all. We are back. I don't know if you could hear that, but we got lawnmowers going off in the distance and whatnot. Fucking annoying as fuck. Hate that shit. <clears throat> All right, I think we are on Biden's CNBC interview. Biden did a CNBC interview last week. This is directly after his staff had been making the argument that he's the next FDR. So I've seen a thousand articles on it. They're really pushing this narrative hard. And then he goes on CNBC and look at how he instantly undermines that. Dem pundits, Democratic pundits, sir, say that Sanders and Warren voters are essential for you to win. I know you've probably seen that, but some aren't quite there yet. Others point out, though, that your candidacy surged when it became apparent to mainstream Democrats that Sanders might be the nominee, and, and then they flocked to you, a more moderate, perhaps, yay. Are you prepared now to say you're going to govern as a progressive and enact programs in the mold of Sanders and Warren and if so, what does that say to, to either moderate Democrats or independents or even some Republicans dissatisfied with President Trump? I'm prepared to say that I have a record of over 40 years and that I'm going to beat Joe Biden. Oh. Look at my record. The fact is that some areas that I think, for example, I think health care is a right, not a privilege. I do not support Medicare for all. I will not support Medicare for all, but I do support making sure that Obamacare is around with a public option for those who can't afford, those who qualify for Medicaid and they don't get in their state, they would be able to buy, they'd be able to automatically enroll in the public option of Medicare. That would, but I do not support a, you know, a forgiving debt loan for every single solitary person, no matter where you went to school. But I do support the idea. If, in fact, you have a student debt as a consequence of going to a public university and your income is under $125,000, it should be forgiven. I do believe that anyone going to school that, in fact, goes to a public university and or community college, they should be able to go for free if income is under $125,000. Yeah, let me paraphrase for you. You know all those good ideas from Bernie that he was running on in the primary? I want to take those ideas and make them bad, and then I'm for that. Thank you, Joe. So let's means test everything away as much as we possibly can. Let's not do Medicare for all. He says he believes health care is right, and then he says, but I'm not for Medicare for all. Well, the only way you can get health care to be right is to be in favor of Medicare for all, or one version or another of a universal health care system. And then he says, and for a public option, on his own website, he says he covers 90% of, 97, excuse me, percent of the country, which means millions of people under his plan are not covered. This is his position, mind you, before he even engages in any sorts of uh, conversations and, and discussions and negotiations with the right. So he pre-compromises on the pre-compromise not Medicare for all, not universal health care, 97% coverage, and then the right's going to step in and say, how about we give you nothing and you like it? And he's going to say, okay, since I'm Joe Biden and I always agree with the right, then okay, I would 100% agree with you and let's do nothing on health care and I'll pretend like I tried, but it got defeated because you're very bad people. 
I'm tired of this game, man. All of his opinions are like straight out of this Washington, D.C. elitist bubble where you have to find the middle path of the middle path to be a serious person. Meanwhile, we have a pandemic in the country, 100,000 dead, and an economic depression, 40 million people losing their jobs, up to 43 million people losing their health insurance, and he's still over there doing the middle ground tap dance while his own staff is like, hey, by the way, just so everybody knows, New FDR we got over here. New FDR. This is, whenever anybody says that, you should hold them to that because FDR laid out in clear detail his second Bill of Rights. It's the Economic Bill of Rights, and he didn't get to implement this before he passed. And they go as follows. One, a job. Two, you have a right to a job, a right to an adequate wage and a decent living, a right to a decent home, a right to medical care. That would be Medicare for all. A right to economic protection during sickness, accident, old age, or unemployment, and a right to a good education. That would be free college. He laid it all out right there. Six points. Boom. Done. Now, which one of those is Biden for? None of them. It's not like, oh, he's only for half of them, so he's not really like FDR. He's only for two of them. He's only for one of them. He's for none of them. He doesn't believe in a right to a job. He doesn't believe in a right to an adequate wage and a decent living. He doesn't believe in a right to a decent home. He doesn't believe in a right to medical care. He doesn't believe in a right to economic protection during sickness, accident, old age, or unemployment. He doesn't believe in a good education. By the way, he repeatedly tried to cut Social Security. That would be economic protection during um, old age. Even that, he tried to cut that. He doesn't believe in free college. I mean, it, guys, honestly, it's pathetic. It's a joke. It's sick. And he said there, he's been saying this a lot now. There's a new line on his part. I have a record of over 40, he says 40 weird, like to try and put an emphasis on it. I have a record of over 40 years. That's right, you do. And it includes NAFTA, pushing TPP, the Patriot Act, the Iraq War, the Grand Leach Bliley Act, which repealed Glass-Steagall, which gave us the 2008-2009 subprime mortgage crisis and Great Recession, Wall Street bailout. You do have a long record, but you want to be careful telling people to look into it, because if they look into it, they'll realize very quickly you're a fraud. You're a neoliberal corporatist to your core. So... Guys, it just it drives me crazy because it's one thing if Biden's going to go out there and Biden's going to be totally honest about his beliefs and there's going to be no contradiction coming from the campaign. But what we have here is in the midst of doing his window dressing with the task forces um, and in the midst of his staff telling us he's going to be like FDR, he goes out there and he says, I'm going to be the exact opposite. I'm going to be the continuation of a Bill Clinton presidency. I'm going to be a neoliberal corporatist. Like, Make your goddamn mind up in terms of what you're going to do. We know what you're going to do. But what your messaging is, too. Just embrace your neoliberal corporatism. Tell your campaign to shut off the fake FDR nonsense. See, the campaign is smart enough to know that, oh, my God, we're in, like, a terrible moment in history with an economic depression and a pandemic. we got to go above and beyond. But Biden is still, he's caught in his own way, old ways, and he can't change, and he's beholden to all these corporate interests, so he can't even be a social democrat if he wanted to be a social democrat. So... Like, you have these, these competing interests and competing philosophies, and there's a tug-of-war going on, and you're seeing it in public, and that's how disorganized and stupid the campaign is. You know how Trump got made fun of a lot in 2016 for how stupid and disorganized his campaign is, campaign is and there's no coordination? This is the exact same thing. This is the exact same thing. This is you can't teach an old dog new tricks. You can't even pretend to be on the left. 
They're doing the BS task forces to pretend like it, and the staff is saying he's FDR, but he goes out there and bursts that bubble immediately. And this interview came out the same day as the Breakfast Club interview, and this one got none of the attention, even though this one was more substantive in terms of him telling you up front, not for Medicare for all, in the middle of a pandemic where people keep losing their health insurance, not for Medicare for all, not for free college. At this point, corporate Democrats define themselves as to everything they're against, and it just so happens that everything they're against is everything on the left, which makes up the base of their party. So... Don't be upset when the left doesn't show up for you. That's all I have to say. All right, next. Now you're going to get, this one's a little bit of a shock to the system, but i got to give you all the info. This article from The Independent, which is a U.K. publication, is absolutely fascinating. It's on the 2020 election, and here's what they found. A national election model has predicted that Donald Trump will suffer a historic defeat in November's election due to the coronavirus economic recession. The model by Oxford Economics uses unemployment, disposable income, and inflation to forecast election results to predict the election's outcome. According to the model, Mr. Trump will lose in a landslide, capturing just 35% of the popular vote, according to a report by CNN. The model has predicted the winner of the popular vote in 16 of the past 18 elections, and is a complete reversal of what the model was predicting before the coronavirus outbreak hit the U.S. Before the public health crisis, Oxford Economics predicted that Mr. Trump would win about 55% of the vote CNN reported. All right, so this is nothing to scoff at, guys. Look, the model has predicted the winner of the popular vote in 16 of the past 18 elections. So it's a pretty accurate model. And even if they're off, how off will they be? Because they're saying Trump only wins 35% of the popular vote. So for the first time, we have a model predicting a complete landslide. And like they point out, you go back not that long ago, and it was the exact opposite. It was 55% for Trump, so it would have been a landslide for Trump. Now they're saying it's a landslide for Biden. Man, see, this goes to a point I've made on this show a lot recently, which is I literally wouldn't be surprised with any outcome in this election. There's not a single thing that could happen that would surprise me. If, if the election is razor thin, wouldn't be surprised at all. If Biden edges it out, not surprised. If Trump edges it out, not surprised. If Trump wins in a landslide, not surprised. If Biden wins in a landslide, not surprised. Because anything can happen because everything is so volatile right now. I've never seen things this volatile before. Like I told you guys, immediately, like when a national tragedy or crisis hits, usually that helps the president because everybody feels patriotic when a crisis initially hits and they want to believe in strong leadership and say, we love our country and we'll get through this. So when you look at 9-11, for example, Bush's approval rating was like over 80% after 9-11. In the case of Trump, his approval rating went up when coronavirus started, because he was doing the press conferences and trying to you know, play Mr. Leader and whatnot, and you had that initial crisis reaction where people fell in line. Well, the more a crisis goes on, the more people get sick of it, and the more people at some point just want to change in leadership if things aren't getting better. So, again, it all depends on which part of the timeline we're in when the election happens. Is it still the part where people are feeling somewhat patriotic and they're going to support the leadership? 
Or is it going to be, hey, it's been going on for so long and there's no relief, so I got to go for the whoever the hell else there is. And I'm, I'm serious. We, we have an election here that's fascinating in so many ways. I think in some ways it really is a referendum on how well Trump can BS. Now, Trump has been BSing people his whole life, so he's a master at it. But how well can he BS people? Because all Biden has to do is hide, and then that helps him the most. Biden just has to do nothing, and people will vote based on what they think Biden is, not what Biden actually is and the fact that he can't talk now. But if Trump has to go out there and continually BS and continually, you know, make himself look like a leader who's got things under control, even though things aren't under control. And, you know, he could use the 04 uh, George Bush argument against John Kerry that, hey, man, you can't change leadership in the middle of a crisis. You've got to have a steady hand at the wheel. And that's what I am. That's what Bush said. Can't change horses midstream. You have like a goofy saying for it or whatever. But like this is a referendum. How well can Trump BS the country? It is a real test of his skills here because we have an economic depression and we have a pandemic. Those hardcore realities and the economic fallout, oh my God, that'll, that could wipe out anybody. It all depends on what he does. Now remember, think of like FDR. FDR you know, the fact that he fought back against the Depression and did shovel-ready projects and did uh, the New Deal and helped people, like that led to the country loving him. So if they sense that there's some effort on Trump's part to really fix stuff, then it could be a landslide for Trump. But if it's the opposite and he's doing what he's been doing, which is sitting on his ass and, you know, continually passing these bailout bills that go to corporate America and the wealthy, well, then, of course, he's going to get wiped out. And he'll be replaced with somebody who would probably do the same stuff, but people just will just want that change. But I've never seen a number this low where they say 35% of the popular vote for Trump. That's the biggest wipeout for Trump that you could ever imagine, and a total reversal of before you had the pandemic. So, again, it's yet to be seen. People shouldn't get too much on their high horse if they're the Democrats here because, you know, everybody felt like Hillary was going to win in the last election. Um it was the pervasive belief throughout all of the media, and it just didn't happen. So you can't, like, don't, it's not over yet. It's not over yet. Everything is still so volatile. Um, anything could happen. It, I mean, I don't, Biden could freaking pass away. Like, anything could happen. Trump could pass away. Anything could happen between now and the election. You don't know. So we have to wait and see. But I've, these are, the reason why this is such a story is because, He's way behind the eight ball now. Like, the onus is on this dude. It's not like it's going to – the dynamic as of right now is more like Biden has the powers of the incumbency, and now Trump's got to make up the difference. So we'll see. We'll see if he could do it. We'll see how well – how good his BSing skills are. Um, One of the problems that I've pointed out to you guys before is that Trump is a a fake populist bomb thrower, and that – Populist bomb throwing is appealing in relatively normal times because people hate the establishment. But in times of crisis, I think people want more of like a soothing, calm leader with a steady hand that soothes the nation. And that's not this guy. This guy only knows how to do feuds. Feuds are great when people hate the establishment, and but times are relatively normal. Nonstop feuds are not that great when, you know, we have like a historic unemployment rate and regular people are getting crushed and the pandemic and a hundred thousand people are dying. Like that's just not when bomb throwing people don't want a bomb thrower. Then they want somebody who's either going to fix it or appear very adult in 
approaching these problems, and that's not him. So really a crisis is tailor-made to be a, a difficult situation for this guy in that he can't, he doesn't know how to deal with it. Um, so, like, it's all fun and, and it's all fine and dandy when dude is acting all crazy when, you know, things are not totally out of whack. But when you got an unemployment rate that's really above 20% and you got 100,000 people dead from a pandemic and you got millions of people that have gotten sick, all of a sudden, that show is no longer funny and no longer entertaining. It's like, wow, what's going on here? So nobody's in charge? Nobody's really leading? So I don't know. Yet again, we'll see what happens. But this, these numbers are stunning. And Biden is definitely, at this point in time, a favorite. All right, so this moment is hilarious. I had to show it to you. This is from last week. President Trump was asked a question, and he's outside of the White House here, and it's sort of like his brain glitched a little bit. Um, He's asked about taking the COVID-19 test, which I guess he takes on a regular basis. Makes sense. He's the president. Um, And look at how he answers the question. And I tested very positively in a... In another sense. So this morning, yeah, I tested positively toward negative, right? So, so I tested uh, perfectly this morning. Meaning, meaning I tested negative. Positively toward the negative. I have to tell you, we took some of the best tests, the most amazing tests you've ever seen, really tremendous tests. I tested very positively. I tested positive. I tested positively towards the negative. Negative is the better. So I tested negative, but I was I tested positively in the sense that I tested negative. It was positive towards the negative, and they were great tests. And we're we're gonna make sure that we're gonna we're looking at it very strongly. We're gonna look at it over the next period of time. Positively towards the negative. <laughs> oh man, that's great. That's great. You could tell. You could see his thought process. His thought process is like. Something that's positive is usually good. But in the case of tests, testing for COVID, a positive is bad. But he couldn't just say, I tested negative. Because he couldn't, that wasn't coming to him. So he was like, I tested positively towards the negative. I tested well. I tested perfect. I had a perfect test, perfect COVID test. It was positive in the sense that I tested negative. His brain just glitched. He can't, but that happens all the time with him, unexpectedly. He's, uh, he's not all that bright. Anyway, um, so now it's not just this, because this is, whatever, just an offhand remark and a funny moment, but um, Trump is also having some major brain glitches in terms of the strategy that he's going with for 2020. So what did I tell you guys in the past? I told you guys, Trump was caught between, should I use the slogan, make America great again, again, or should I use, keep America great? And I don't know how many of you remember my commentary, but my commentary was, if he wants to win, he has to keep make America great again. Because the idea of make America great again is, I mean, we're reading into it here, but this is the interpretation a lot of people have on some level. 
It's like, okay, things are not great right now. We all agree. Things are a mess. The country's not doing well. Our jobs are being outsourced. Our infrastructure is falling apart. We got all these wars going on. To make America great again, there's an acknowledgement in there that things aren't great now, but we're working towards a better future. It, it actually, in many ways, it almost similar to the Obama, you know, slogan of change. Like, yeah, things aren't great. Well, let's make them good. Change. So that embedded in that message, there is more of a me versus the world type thing going on for Trump. Me versus the corrupt establishment. I'm going to take him on. I'm going to take him on. I'm going to fight for you. And one of the things he always said on the campaign trail was the forgotten men and women would never be forgotten again. Um, now, for him to go with keep America great in 2020, what does that mean? That implies, hey, guys, I already fixed everything in, in three and a half, four years. I already fixed everything. We're good. I came in here, did everything I was supposed to do. I'm so amazing. I'm so great. I got everything done in four years. So now it's not like let's keep fighting for a better future, make America great again. Now it's we're good. Let's keep our gains, keep America great. Now, why is that such a bad strategy? It's got the same thing as, remember Hillary in 2016? America's already great when she responded to him with that. That's a fundamentally conservative message, and it totally flies in the face. face. It's anathema to everybody's lived experience. Everybody knows the country's falling apart, our infrastructure's crumbling, our jobs are being outsourced, we've got all these wars going on. Like, well, we got all these problems, all these problems. And you're going to say, keep America great as if it's already great, but it's not. So, and people know that. People know that. So for him to go keep America great, that's more... That's more of a, I'm not going to try to expand the coalition. I'm not going to try to be an outsider. I'm going to say, we already won. We already got it. And that's a terrible strategy. So now, Trump is flying banners, campaign banners, that say, keep America great, over U.S. beaches on Memorial Day. That is a terrible idea. We have a pandemic going on. Millions of people have gotten sick. The official numbers are that the official numbers that 100,000 died is probably way more than that. Just like that real number of cases is way more than, you know, a million whatever it is at the moment. This that's just what we've tested for and we know. Way more than that. So you can't when you have 100,000 people dead from a pandemic, when you have an unemployment rate that's actually over 20%, which far surpasses the great recession and now we're in great depression territory. Like you can't say keep America great. It's not great right now. Everything's terrible. So there's no, I mean, I told you this election in many ways is going to be a test of his BSing, uh, of his BSing skills. Well, this is like, oh, man, is he BSing everybody with this. Keep America great banners as the country's falling apart. We got a pandemic and an economic depression. I don't know, man. I don't think that's going to work. I really don't think that's going to work. I think this is the first time in a while I've seen a strategy out of Trump where I'm like, politics aside, because I obviously disagree with him on the uh, politics, or, or I'm sorry, the policy aside, because I obviously disagree with him on policy, but in terms of the politics, he ran a much better campaign in 2016. So now you got an economic depression, you got a pandemic, you have an election model that just came out, which showed Trump getting beaten a landslide, which is the first one I've seen where he gets beaten a landslide. This same model before COVID-19 had Trump winning in a landslide. 
and this is his strategy, oh boy, this does not bode well for him. And that's even with given all of Biden's flaws. Even with given all of Biden's flaws, all he's got to do is hide. Just hide and let people look at the show of craziness going on in front of them. And it's very possible that Biden can win doing nothing in the same way he won the primary doing nothing. Didn't even have campaign offices in some states he won. Can definitely happen, man. Can definitely happen. Um, Worst strategy I've seen from Trump. I'm officially declaring it. He's in trouble. Unless he switches course, unless he changes course, Trump's in trouble. Biden is definitely, as of right now, the favorite. The good news for him, though, is that it's the most volatile race I've ever seen in my entire life, and that could easily change on a dime. But as of right now, he's in trouble. All right, next. So, United States international imperialism and thuggery is on full display at the moment. This is in Reuters. They say, exclusive, U.S. considers returning Cuba to list of state sponsors of terrorism. The United States is considering returning Cuba to its list of state sponsors of terrorism, a senior Trump administration official told Reuters on Thursday, a move that would mark another major blow to increasingly tense relations between Washington and Havana. Um, So look at how much they lie to you. You're going to add Cuba to the list of state sponsors of terrorism. Cuba. Cuba. Can any of you name a single Cuban terrorist attack? against the United States. I'll wait. I can't name it because it doesn't exist. You know what I can name? All repeated attacks against them when they overthrew our puppet dictator and then they took back control of their own country. Agree or disagree with Fidel is irrelevant. Cuba is its own country. It's a sovereign country. We had a puppet dictator in there to do our bidding. Well, when they threw out our puppet dictator, what did we do? We waged a campaign of international terrorism against them, trying to topple Fidel. Again, agree or disagree with Fidel, it's irrelevant. That's their country, and we had a puppet dictator in there. People don't know that history, but it's true. So we're going to add them to the list of state sponsors of terrorism. Why? Well, they go on to explain in the article, well, you know, they're still trading partners with Venezuela. And... Uh, Well, you see, Venezuela is bad because Venezuela has Maduro, and they're trying to help Maduro. We're putting crippling sanctions on that country where we're destroying their economy and trying to topple the government by any means necessary, even if that means starving the the citizens that live there. And since they're getting in the way of that, and they're still trading with Venezuela and Maduro, and they still have an open line of communication, we think that that makes them terrorists. Do you see how ridiculous this is? How the neocon warhawks are the biggest thugs on the planet the biggest imperialists on the planet. They don't allow other sovereign countries 
to make their own decisions. It's like there was a, a big scandal recently where Iran was trying to deliver oil to Venezuela, and we blocked them. Okay, we don't. That's we have no say. That's their sovereign countries. They can do whatever the hell they want. No, the U.S. is the international bully. We determine what happens. So we block them from getting much-needed oil. You see who the bad guy is in this scenario? I mean, I could go on and on here. We also, on top of pulling out of the Iran deal, which we violated, we then sanctioned things going into Iran, including medicine. People were dying because they couldn't get the medicine they need. You know who's doing international terrorism? I hate to tell you, it's us. We're the ones doing it. So this is, I mean, it's comical at this point. You're going to put Cuba on the list of state sponsors of terrorism because they have a relationship with Venezuela. Meanwhile, we've been trying to overthrow Venezuela. We just tried to do that cockamamie failed coup, um, you know, which they say it was Juan Guaido who paid the people trying to do the coup, and they got caught by fishermen. Like, we are the thug. On these issues, we are the international terrorists. And it shouldn't be a surprise to you guys, because we're also the country that illegally and offensively invaded countries that didn't attack us, like Iraq. Saddam had nothing to do with 9-11, and we lied and said he did, and then we went in there and toppled him. Killed minimum 200,000 civilians, and then did torture to cover it up. Look at how ridiculous this is. We are 100% in the wrong on this. And I wish I could come out here and say, hey, man, um, Trump is going in the wrong direction on this, but thankfully Biden's running and he's going he's gonna, to you know, change things back. But he's not, because he already admitted that when it comes to Cuba, he wants to keep sanctions on them. Now, maybe he wouldn't add them to the state sponsors of terror, terrorism list. I don't know. But he said he wants to keep you know, the sanctions on Cuba, which, by the way, flies directly in the face of one of the good things Obama did. Obama relaxed our tensions with Cuba. He was right about that. He was right to relax our tensions with Iran. He was right about that. I'll give credit where credit is due. Obama was right about those things. But Biden is running, and he's siding more with neocon war hawks than with the person he was vice president to. Cuban terrorism. Piss off! Who could hear that and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even if you don't like the Cuban government, even if you don't like the Venezuelan government, even if you think, oh, my God, they're terrible, they're dictators, so on and so forth, fill in the blank with whatever negative word you want to use. Even if you believe that, it doesn't make sense to add them to the state sponsors of terrorism list unless we're the thug, we're the imperialist, we're the terrorist, and we're really just trying any way we possibly can to overthrow every government that doesn't submit to U.S. business interests. And that's exactly what we're doing. Okay. I'm going to give you some new terrifying facts, y'all. I fucking hate that lawnmower in the background. I want to go fight whoever's using it. So I have some new terrifying facts on wealth and income inequality for everybody. Uh, This is something. This is from CNBC. They say, American billionaires got $434 billion richer during the pandemic. America's billionaires saw their fortunes soar by $434 billion during the U.S. lockdown between mid-March and mid-May, according to a new report. Amazon's Jeff Bezos and Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg 
had the biggest gains uh, with Bezos adding $34.6 billion to his wealth and Zuckerberg adding $25 billion, according to the report from the Americans for Tax Fairness and the Institute for Policy Studies Program for Inequality. The report is based on Forbes data for America's more than 600 billionaires between March 18th, when most states were in lockdown, and May 19th. The billionaire gains highlight how the coronavirus pandemic has rewarded the largest and most tech-focused companies, even as the economy and labor force grapples with the worst economic crisis in recent history. According to the report, the net worth of America's billionaires grew 15% during the two-month period to $3.382 trillion from $2.948 trillion. The biggest gains were at the top of the billionaire pyramid, with the richest five billionaires, Bezos, Bill Gates, Zuckerberg, Warren Buffett, and Larry Ellison, seeing combined wealth gains of $76 billion. So if you were wondering, I don't get it, how the hell do we have a situation where the stock market is now soaring? The stock market is soaring as the economy implodes and unemployment spikes and regular people are getting obliterated. How do we have a situation like that? Here's your answer. Stock market is more of a reflection of how corporations are doing and how the top 1% is doing. And when you have the government, when you have the Federal Reserve and when you have the government, both step up and say, listen, no matter what happens, you're not going to lose out, wealthy people and corporations. Blank check, blank check. From the Fed, a trillion dollars of liquidity a day pumps into the market. From uh, Washington, D.C., don't worry about it. We're going to pass a, a COVID bailout bill, $5 trillion worth. Uh, Goldman Sachs lackey Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin will get to determine where all the money goes. No oversight. What they just did is they told the wealthy, under no circumstances can you lose. In fact, you'll probably win. So when times go well, you win. When times are bad, you still win. We privatize the profits. We socialize the losses. We make it crystal clear. Now we have a situation where... America's billionaires got $434 billion richer during the pandemic as everybody else is struggling. Now, let me ask you a question. Isn't just this story, just this, enough to totally undermine the world economic system and to say we have to radically, radically change stuff? Isn't this enough? Like, can't any reasonable person Look at this set of facts and say, oh, my God, the system is broken beyond repair. We look back, at, you know, at uh, feudal times, for example, and it's like, well, feudalism was obviously immoral. Duh. Okay. Don't you see how we – it's not like we've evolved out of immoral systems. We're still in a deeply, deeply immoral and unethical system that doesn't exist for the betterment of all people for the betterment of society. Like, the way that this system is structured with the, it, with the incentives and disincentives makes it so that this is a, like, somewhat expected outcome at this point. We have a pandemic. We have an economic depression, over 20% unemployment. People are, are losing their health care on top of their jobs. 28 million originally had no health insurance. Now it could be another 43 million on top of that. And this is like, everybody looks at this and goes, wow, that's actually kind of expected that it would go this way. That no matter what, the wealthy can't lose and don't lose. The corporations can't lose and don't lose. And 
only the people get screwed. You're the first who are sacrificed at the altar of capitalism. As, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, you have rugged individualism and laissez-faire capitalism for you, where if you fail, you fail, but the wealthy have socialism for them, corporate socialism. And that's what we're looking at here. No matter what, everybody's got to take a haircut, right? In, in a time like this, at a moment like this, it, the entire economy is imploding. How the hell are they doing better? How are they doing better? And by the way, we ain't seen nothing yet. We're just beginning to see the consolidation of wealth at the top even more. Because now you have a crisis where almost half of small businesses could go out of business soon. And if that happens, the bigger businesses buy up the small businesses and we have more monopolization across the economy, more concentrated wealth at the top. That's very, very likely to happen now. So look at all these trends that we're seeing. Look at all these trends. And this crisis just exacerbated it. And Congress just helped because they voted for the bill that was the largest upward transfer of wealth, arguably, in U.S. history from the poor to the wealthy. And even Bernie Sanders voted for it. So uh, we're going to have a crisis of more consolidation at the top, more monopolization. We're going to have a crisis of unemployment and homelessness, the likes of which we haven't seen maybe ever, but definitely at least since the Great Depression. And there are casual articles about how the market's doing well and the billionaires are getting richer. You know, listen, I'm a, I'm a deep believer in nonviolent peaceful resistance because that's the only way we change stuff where we also keep the moral high ground. But pff, some people are going to grab those pitchforks. That's crystal clear. And can, can you really be mad at them? Looking at this set of facts, People losing their jobs, getting measly $1,200 payments. There's going to be a a foreclosure and eviction crisis. It's going to be incredible. Homelessness is going to spike dramatically. All of these guys are swimming in more and more cash. And the crazy thing is the answers are so simple and so straightforward. There are so many ways to ameliorate these ills. Just bring back the old tax rates. We used to have a, a tax rate on the rich of... 90% under Eisenhower. Now, this is where people say, yeah, but they didn't actually pay 90%. Correct, but the effective rate was still 43%. 43%. And we're talking about over a certain line. I don't know exactly how many millions it had to be. Like maybe everything over 10 million in income was taxed at like 43% or something along those lines. But guys, all you need to, to fix this stuff is actually having a strong progressive tax system where you stop the extreme consolidation of wealth at the top. You can stop that through tax policy, and you can, yes, redistribute to make sure everybody has food, everybody has education, everybody has health care. You can have something like FDR wanted, which was he wanted the right to a job. It was part of his, you know, new bill of rights that, that we speak about all the time. So there are simple answers to these questions, but you have to have the political will to do it. And we don't have the political will because our Congress, all of our politicians in the House and the Senate, they're bought by special interests. They're bought by corporations and the wealthy. So there's a reason why they have like a 22% approval rating. And there's a reason why they never seem to do what's good for you because they're not working for you. They're working for the moneyed interests. And this should be a slap in the face because in a country that made sense, we would look at this and go, oh my God, we need to fix this like right now, right now, emergency session of Congress, 
redistribute the wealth. I hate to tell you guys, redistribution of wealth is the duh position. If you're not for it, you're a sucker. Because it's not like the way things work right now, it was written in the laws of nature, and it's not something we could ever change under any circumstance ever. Yes. No, it's not like that. These people don't have all the money because they just worked harder. This isn't a meritocracy. You think it's a meritocracy that the billionaires got $434 billion in a pandemic with over 20% unemployment, 100,000 people dead, the economy imploding? You think this is a meritocracy? They just worked that much harder in this situation? It's not a meritocracy. It's not the harder you work, the further you go. A system where we had that would make a hell of a lot more sense than what we have right now, which is the wealthy and the corporations never, ever, ever lose, ever, ever. Privatize the profits, socialize the losses. Whoops, we hit a downturn. Well, Fed, let me loot the treasury, give me all the money. Uh, Washington, D.C., bail me out till the cows come home. No matter what, let the people get crumbs and suffer. This is where we're at. This is where we're at. This isn't a meritocracy. Don't defend this system. Everybody should be arguing for redistribution of wealth. Tax the rich, pay for health care, pay for education, pay for a universal basic income, which is desperately needed right now. This is all easy to do. It's possible to do. But again, you need a government that's working for you, and our government is not working for you. All right, next. So some reporters sparred with the White House press secretary. I still don't know how to say her name, and I probably should. Kaylee McEnany? McEnany? <laughs> I don't know how to say it. But anyway, uh, they sparred with her. This is on the issue of churches opening up at this point in the pandemic. Let's see how that went. I'm dying to go back to church. The question is, 
question that we're asking you and would like to have asked the President and Dr. Burke is, is it safe? And if it's not safe, is the President trying to encourage that or does the President agree with Dr. Burke that people should wait? Jeff, it is safe to reopen your churches if you do so in accordance with the guidelines, which are laid out um, very stringent detail here about promoting hygiene practices, and there are five bullet points, and cloth face coverings. Um, if social distancing is not possible, it's recommended. Um, intensifying cleanings, promoting social distance, we lay them out meticulously. Um, so I am thankful that we have a president that celebrates the First Amendment. The same amendment that gives you all the ability to ask me questions is there to have the freedom of worship so imams and pastors um, can go to their churches, can go to their places of worship, and can celebrate what is a First Amendment right in this country, which is to pray to your God and to practice your faith. And we celebrate so now, that, too. I just want to follow up by saying we celebrate that, too. And so First we should be thankful that there are guidelines to allow us to well, re-engage in that behavior. We're not asking you if, if the president and our people are allowing Americans to pray. That, that's not the to gather that in their places asking. of worship to attend church services, to pray together. And the president has laid out a clear path. The CDC has laid out a clear path for this to take place, for our First Amendment to be exercised in a way that is safe and robust. All right, so this, this back and forth actually perfectly shows why I hate everybody, <laughs> why I hate the current political situation. So I think she's full of it, and I'm gonna, I'll break that down in a little bit, like the points she made that are just stupid. But then also I think the media sucks too, and they think they're being like super adversarial, but like the questions they're asking are just dumb. So all right, let, let's go through this. Um, Trump wants to reopen churches. Uh, there are some states that are like, no, that's not safe yet. We're going to keep them shut down. So now there's this debate and this commentary going on as to who really has the authority. Can Trump override the states? Can he tell them to open up? Um, and, you know, what's the right thing to do? Well, first of all, let me just say, is it safe to go back in churches at this point in time? It's really not. Um, you, have, you have coronavirus cases, coronavirus cases going up in more states than they're going down. The prime place where the coronavirus spreads is in close quarters with a lot of people. That's like exactly what happens in places of worship. So, and that's why it was really controversial about like hairdressers too and barbers, because again, a bunch of people in, in close quarters. So um, they're just like the least safe of all the possible options. I've seen evidence that it's very difficult for coronavirus to spread outside. Okay, great. So, you know, be reasonable. Wear a mask when you can and socially distance, but you can go outside. You can open all the things that are outside. I think that's fair to say. And you could open select things if you're safe about it indoors. But really, when you talk about, like, churches, it's kind of like tailor-made as the worst possible places to open in the midst of a pandemic. And we're just not, like, we have 100,000 people dead, millions of cases, cases going up in more states than it's going down, it's just not a good idea to open it. Um, so, but that doesn't mean the questions are good. So let's run through it. She says, one of the questions is, under what authority can the president override the governors? That's one of the questions that the media keeps asking. I mean, this is like politics 101. It's called the supremacy clause of the Constitution. 
And the idea of the Supremacy Clause is that the Constitution and federal law overrides state law. So does Trump have the authority to override the governors and say, no, the churches can open? Actually, he does. And that would be, if that went to a court, that would be settled very quickly, where the judges would say, yeah, this isn't a question. And, but funny enough, funny enough, Trump is actually going against conservative ideology here. Because conservative ideology, to the extent they actually believe it, is states' rights should supersede the federal government. And so the idea would be, you know, let the states make their own mind up. And if the states determine, hey, it's not safe yet, well, the conservative thing to do would be to say, I'll take a step back and let the states make their own decisions. But Trump doesn't agree with that. Trump wants to side with opening the churches. So even when states are like, I don't want to do that, Trump's like, no, you can do that. Um, so he's not abiding by conservative ideology, but yet again, this shows he's not really a conservative ideologue. But, you know, Kaylee's defending it as well, and that she's not abiding by conservative principle here either. But that's neither here nor there. The question from the media was dumb because anybody, anybody who's asking these questions should know the answer to that. Kaylee didn't know the answer to that, and neither did the reporters, which is like, what are you guys doing? You don't know that basic fact? You don't know the supremacy clause of the Constitution? You don't know that Trump actually does have the right to tell, to say, yes, the churches can open even if the states say no? Um, then they keep asking, does the president want to reopen churches? Yeah, she said that like in the clearest way possible, and his statement is very clear. He wants to reopen churches. Why do you keep asking that question? This is what I mean. It's like they're trying to be adversarial, but the question is stupid. And then the thing they keep asking over and over is like, the answer is yes. Why do you keep asking that? It's like, it's like they're trying to be adversarial, but they're just not that smart, and they suck at it. Um, and then the part that she said that pissed me off was when she said like in a snarky way, like, it's kind of crazy that we're in a room that desperately wants to see churches close. As if, like, like, the claim that she's trying to make, the subtext here is like, I'm in a room with godless, godless liberal media reporters. As if, like, there's some sort of conspiracy of, like, let's keep it closed because we're anti-religion. <laughs> and then one of the guys made a good point when he was like, no, I'm religious. I go to church. I'm saying because it's not safe. That's what the evidence shows at this point in time. But she tried, she had to get her little, like, partisan stupid jab in of, like, you guys all want to see churches closed. It's like she's trying to make the case, like, I guess you're just anti-religion, aren't you? No, they're anti-pandemic spreading, Kaylee. That's what it is, if I'm saying your name properly. Um, but then the final point is, and this is where the media should have gone with this, but they didn't go there because, again, I just don't think that the people in the room are that smart. But what's really going on here and why Trump is like, let's open the churches no matter what the states say, is that, He's trying to shore up his base for 2020. Part of, uh, you know, his base, probably the strongest part of his base, is evangelical fundamentalist Christians. They love Trump. So this is him catering to them because they want to open the churches, and they're not that concerned about the pandemic because they're not all that big on science. And so he's trying to cater to them and serve them. So Trump is shoring up his base for 2020. It's purely a political act. It's not based on the science. It's not based on the evidence. It's not based on the harm that will be done. And then also, Trump is just brainwashed from Fox News because Fox News has recently done a bunch of stories about how they think churches should be open, and they do these weird comparisons of like, well, in this state, they opened up liquor stores, but not churches. And they're trying to do like the gotchas, like stupid gotcha politics in the middle of a pandemic.
in the middle of a pandemic. This is like the level of conversation that we're having. And Trump has seen those segments, and so he's like, yeah, I want to I please Fox News and do what they're telling me to do. So he's calling for churches to be reopened. So everybody pisses me off in this. I think the media sucks because they're asking stupid questions, questions they should know the answer to, questions they think are gotchas, but they're not gotchas. Um, But then also I hate Kaylee because she had to do that little jab of like, you know, basically implying like you guys are just anti-religion. That's what you are, godless liberals. That was stupid. And but then also Trump's decision here is stupid, too, because like of all if you're going to make a list of all the things that are like, hey, these are the things where the coronavirus really spreads. Yeah, places of worship are going to be at the top of the list because it fits the definition perfectly. It's indoors, it's close quarters, people are right on top of each other, and that's how it's been spreading the most. That's how it's been spreading the most. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know, man. I'm just annoyed by everybody in this. Um, I could tell you this. I have people in my family who are religious, and they are, you know, beginning to open churches. And the people who I know who are religious, you know what they've said? Hell no. I'd much rather what they're doing is they're like watching services online and they're like, are you kidding me? Like that really is the number one place where if it's going to spread, it's going to spread in a situation like that. You don't want to go there. You don't want to be there. It's guaranteed that you're going to get a giant spike in cases specifically from opening up religious places. So it's just so all the arguments they use are so bad. And this is like so deeply political and not based on public health and it's just gross to see everything all around here. I think the media is terrible. I think Kaylee's terrible. I think the decision from Trump is terrible. And this it just it fits in perfectly with how 2020 is going. All right, next. Chris Cuomo has interviewed his brother, Andrew Cuomo, on CNN about a million times. And um, I want to show you a clip. This is from their latest interview. Then I want to come back and talk about it. And just so everybody understands, this really highlights the mood of the various interviews that they've done. So let's take a look and then we'll discuss. You had video come out before we go to break where you wanted to encourage people to get tested, and some people are afraid it's going to hurt. So you had video of it that I want to show the audience of you actually getting tested. Um, here it is. There's you. You were kind of funny, and they were testing you. Um, now, a few questions about this process. First of all, is it true that when you were having the test administered, you inhaled and the doctor's finger went all the way up your nose and got stuck and had to be released with a tool? Is that true? Just to, just to deal no, with the she, she, she wanted to comment that I have a little button nose, and she was afraid that the swab would actually hurt because it, it extended my uh, nasal cavity. The uh, she was speaking about the delicacy of, of, the, the, of the nose. And that's what, you know what, I understand. This is a normal swab I'm holding up here now for everybody at home. A very valuable object. There's only one company in the entire country that makes these up in Maine. All right? Here's the swab. Is it true that this was the swab that the nurse was actually using on you and that at first it went into your nose and disappeared so that in scale this was the actual swab that was being used 
to fit up that double-barrel shotgun that you have mounted on the front of your pretty face. See, I said I was going to be nice and sweet. I just want to yes, no. And was, was it this? I was trying. Or was it this? Very hard. Look. <laughs> Which was it? <laughs> Very funny. Not at all forced. <sighs> you know, somebody made this point on Twitter that if you had Chris Cuomo interview Andrew Cuomo once, if you had him do it like two or three times, okay, okay. When you have Chris Cuomo interview his brother repeatedly and he does nothing but throw him softballs down the center of the plate and it's a jovial laugh fest, how can anybody make the case that this isn't rank propaganda for the Democrats? They're siblings, and he's joking around. <laughs> now, lest you think, well, what questions are there to ask him, Kyle? There's no questions to ask him like this. He's done a good job with it, right? He's, it, Andrew Cuomo has done a great job with COVID. This is something you hear a lot these days in the media. Well, we have 16,000 deaths in New York. 197,000 cases of coronavirus in New York. And this is just proven. This is just proven. Proven. The ones we've tested for and we know, the real numbers are way higher than this, okay? New York was the worst hit in the entire country. The entire country. At the same time that this was going on, Andrew Cuomo cut at least $6 billion from Medicaid. As a pandemic was hitting the, hitting the state, he cut $6 billion from Medicaid. He also reopened nursing homes and allowed positive COVID patients to go back to the nursing homes, which then made it rip through the nursing homes and led to deaths. There's been no questions on any of that. So CNN keeps allowing Chris Cuomo to interview Andrew Cuomo, his brother, who's a governor, and they keep allowing him to throw softballs down the center of the plate as New York was the worst hit in the entire country. And Andrew Cuomo made a series of horrific decisions, objectively bad decisions, like cutting Medicaid during a pandemic, like having the nursing homes open up and allowing COVID patients back in. This is unacceptable. This is inexcusable. But this is where we're at in today's political climate. You have Fox News which is the propaganda arm of the Republican Party and the propaganda arm of Donald Trump. You have MSNBC and CNN, which is the propaganda arm of the corporate Democrats. The only thing that everybody agrees on is that you cannot give Bernie Sanders positive press. Fox News doesn't do it. CNN doesn't do it. MSNBC doesn't do it. The Nightly News doesn't do it. That's the only one that uniquely gets crap. Anybody who's actually on the left, anybody who's social democratic or left of that, See, that, then you're actually threatening real power, can't give you positive coverage, have to mock you, have to, you know, treat you like you're a leper. Look at this, man. They're doing rank propaganda here for Andrew Cuomo, joking around, having a good time. It's unacceptable. And these are from the people who think they're much better and much more objective journalists than the people on Fox. You're not. You're just doing propaganda for the Democratic Party. That's what you're doing. How can anybody say this isn't that? That's exactly what this is. He made a bunch of terrible decisions. His state did the worst in the country. 
and you're throwing softballs and joking around and talking about big cotton swabs and your tiny nose and come on, man. I mean, this is embarrassing. But unfortunately, the propaganda works. It works. And so people think, oh, yeah, Andrew Cuomo did a great job, and I love the Cuomo brothers and their silly family stuff that they do on CNN. This is supposed to be a news network. You know what's so pathetic? You get better news from me, and I'm super opinionated and have a perspective, but you get more of the straight dope from me than you'll ever get from CNN or MSNBC. I'll tell you my bias up front. They don't tell you they're biased. They have, they have these segments, and they act like, well, we're doing this because this is the right thing to do, and this is Andrew Cuomo didn't do anything wrong, and so we could have a jovial little conversation and treat him like he's wonderful and funny. <laughs> You're supposed to try to hold politicians accountable. Listen, I was a Bernie supporter. The second Bernie started making decisions that I thought were bad, that I thought were wrong for the people, I called him out. I called him out repeatedly. They're not going to do that. They're not holding politicians accountable. And by the way, this is who CNN, or excuse me, this is who YouTube props up. YouTube props up CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, the Nightly News, because they're authoritative sources. And by the way, I got a text the other day. Uh, Nico House uses uh, a program that shows what the algorithm would look like if it just went by merit and if it just went by views. And what you see is videos from me videos from him, videos from Jimmy Dore or TYT or uh, Michael Brooks or Sam Cedar, all of these like independent new media outlets agree or disagree with us or them. Okay. I know there's differences between all of us. Clearly we repeatedly get obliterated by the algorithm and hidden and downplayed and pushed to the side. I mean, on any given day, I'll do a segment on Joe Biden. I'll do a segment on Donald Trump. It can get way more views initially than any CNN clip or MSNBC clip. But ultimately, those, those clips, clips are clips because they get pumped out there relentlessly. And you're very likely to see them pop up more in the algorithm. Now, the biggest problem is when it comes to people who've never viewed this show before. So in other words... If you watch this show a bunch, it's very possible YouTube continues to recommend clips from this show. But it used to be the case our stuff would get showed more to people who aren't normal viewers that are just watching some stuff on news and politics. You'd get a recommended secular talk video because we cover news and politics and we get a decent number of eyeballs on this show. But now, because of the algorithm... There's some sort of blacklist and whitelist and different tiers and different levels of how much you're recommended. And now all the independent media outlets are not recommended almost at all to new people. So subgrowth is at a snail's pace. So you type in, you know, you, you type in anything political and you look at the initial, you know, uh, recommendations, it's always going to be CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. We got lucky in that we slipped one, you know, outsider outlet through, which is The Hill. The Hill is still getting favorable treatment from the YouTube algorithm. And by the way, I think the only reason it's getting favorable treatment from the YouTube algorithm is because it's a, it is a corporate media outlet. We just happen to have some adversarial voices that, you know, basically slipped under the radar and are working for a media outlet like that. The guy who owns it, I think, is a multimillionaire or a billionaire or something. So, but they get favorable treatment from the algorithm. So, but it's, you don't see us there anymore. And it's just, we're fighting with not one arm tied behind our back, 
two arms tied behind our backs. And we're still holding our own, even though they're doing everything they can to shove us to the corner and shove us to the side. So what I'm going to ask of you guys is very simple. I don't really bring this stuff up a lot because, I don't know, it just doesn't feel right to keep bringing it up. I figure if you guys like the show, you're going to subscribe anyway. But do me a favor, subscribe to the show, you know, like the videos if you want, um, but also just click that bell so that when something drops, you get a notification. Because, again, it's just it's so frustrating that we're not recommended to new people as much anymore. So at the very least, I would like to, you know continue to have our own people locked down to make sure that you watch every video that I release and to make sure that we don't get too obliterated by the algorithm where, you know, we dwindle away and we actually start losing subscribers because that's the next step. I'm sure that at some point they're going to implement some sort of algorithm change where it's not just that they slow our rate of growth massively. I could see them implementing some sort of algorithm change where we perpetually lose subscribers. And that's the really terrifying one. I mean, it's already bad. The fact that secular talk doesn't really pop up anymore in the initial searches when you type in something political, even though we're political and very popular, that's bad enough. I'm dreading when it starts going in the other direction. And so also support any independent media outlets that you happen to like, that you happen to watch a lot. Because I don't trust YouTube, they don't trust YouTube, all of us are just at their whim and at their mercy and at their grace, and I don't trust leadership at all, even a little bit. So if you wanted to be a Patreon member, I would greatly appreciate it. And I want to say thank you to everybody who already donates on Patreon. What we do is we try to fund the show through, you know, people who watch and give $2 a month or $3 a month. If you want to go nuts, $7 a month. Um, and that allows me to not worry as much about what YouTube is doing in terms of monetization and in terms of hiding the content. So, but it's terrifying, man, and it's terrible that this is viewed authoritatively. That's the point of this segment. If you take nothing else away from this segment, make it this. What you just saw with the Cuomo brothers, ha, 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 laughing it up, jokes, ha, 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 New York was worse hit by coronavirus and is still doing terrible. That is viewed like authoritative news. The same outlets that got Russiagate dead wrong, viewed as authoritative news. The same outlets that got the Iraq war dead wrong, viewed as authoritative news. This outlet, yes, I'm opinionated, yes, I'm loud, yes, I'm uncivil, I don't have decorum, all that stuff. But if you go issue for issue, we've been a hell of a lot more accurate than all these stupid outlets, okay? And we're not viewed as authoritative, and we're blacklisted, and we're, you know, shoved to the corner and not recommended. And it's just a shame, man, and it's pathetic. And I, we warned everybody every step of the way. That's the final point I'll make on this. I warned them every step of the way. Anybody on the left who ever advocated for deplatforming or censorship or for YouTube to take action against bad stuff, yeah! I told them it's a Trojan horse. It's immediately going to be used to take your stuff and push it to the corner and censor it or deplatform it. They're going to do something to tamp down your popularity. They're going to do something. But unfortunately, uh, many people did not listen and they did not understand that once you set a precedent, it never ends there. And now we are where we are, where we're, uh, you know, we're getting, we're getting screwed. We're getting screwed by the algorithm and they're feeding us this garbage this garbage it'd be one thing if they pushed these guys and they weren't objectively terrible and insulting but they are objectively terrible and insulting and it's not just cnn it is msnbc it is fox news it is all the other so-called authoritative outlets they're actually a hell of a lot worse than many of the alternative outlets the independent outlets outlets like ours which are not afraid to uh you know cross some lines that they would never cross
Okay. So Donald Trump has been claiming that mail-in voting is a plot to steal elections. And Fox News host Chris Wallace stepped up to correct the record here. Well, you know, I've done some deep dive in it. There really is no record of massive fraud or even serious fraud from mail-in voting. Uh, It's being carried out in Republican states. It's being carried out in Democratic states. There's no indication that mail-in voting as opposed to in-person voting tends to favor one party over another. If anything, it tends to favor Republicans because the people, now we're talking about outside of pandemic, who historically have tended to vote most often by mail are elderly people, people over 65, and they tend to vote more Republican than Democratic. So, you know, have there been some cases? Yes. And there's an issue sometimes with what's called vote harvesting, where instead of mailing in your ballot, uh, that, that you'll get people who will go into a community and vacuum up, collect all the ballots, say they're going to take them in. And then the danger, of course, is that they will discard the ballots from neighborhoods that they think are going to vote for the other party. We've seen that uh, in North Carolina. There was a big case involving a Republican who did that, and it helped a Republican win the election. It was so serious they had to have a new election. It's happened sometimes in California. But when people get their ballots and mail them in themselves, no history of fraud at all. Donald Trump and the Republicans' propaganda outlet has just turned on Donald Trump on this issue because it's one that's so ridiculous and so over the top that they couldn't even bring themselves to play defense. So Trump keeps claiming that, like, uh, no, we're not going to do mail-in voting. We're not going to do mail-in voting because it's all, it's, that's all fraud. That's all fraud. Can't trust those elections. Um, And by the way, Trump even made that point at a time when there was a special election and the Republicans won. He says in one sentence, it's all a Democratic plot to steal the election. And then the next sentence, he's like, and we just had a mail-in election and the Republican won. Like Chris Wallace says, if it helps anybody, it tends to help Republicans because older voters do the mail-in voting and older voters lean to the right, generally speaking. So it's not like... I don't know where they get these ideas from, but once he gets an idea in his head, he just, he never lets it go, and he runs with it. And it's so obnoxious, and it's so absurd, and it's so ridiculous. I'm not saying our elections are perfect. They're definitely not. But here's what I would say. We should absolutely ban private companies, using private companies for any sort of machines that count the votes or collect the ballots or whatever it may be, because that's the real problem. The problem is when you have private companies that have ties to certain politicians, you're using their computers, you're using their products, and that is not objective, that's not fair, that's not an independent third party looking at it, that is somebody with a conflict of interest and using their product for it. That's my concern when it comes to our elections. That's my concern. But he's talking about how mail-in votes are, are a fraud. No, Donald, the reason why we want to move towards a mail-in voting system, the reason why we want to do that is because there's a pandemic. 
And it's a way to make sure people are safe. Because, again, when you think of the worst kinds of places to be in for a pandemic, it's enclosed areas, close quarters with other people, like on top of other people. That's exactly what you get when you go to vote. You get lines. You get people right next to each other. You get one person coughs. You're going to infect a dozen people or more, at least, because then you have people continually walking in and out of the room, and they could, you know, breathe it in or whatever. Like, that's – it's so obvious that we need to do something to have an election that doesn't involve – all going into a small place where one person with COVID can infect everybody. And so that's why people want to do, you know, mail-in voting. And again, Trump even admits, like, yeah, these Republicans won in the mail-in voting thing. But then he says it's all a Democratic plot to steal the election. Believe me, I do not trust the Democrats. I don't trust the Republicans. I don't trust any of these people making objective decisions. But what I can guarantee you is mail-in voting in and of itself is not a problem. As Chris Wallace laid out there, the real issue is what's called vote harvesting. I can't talk today. Vote harvesting, which is the idea that, okay, you go ahead and you do your ballot, but then there's groups, political groups, that go around and collect all the ballots, and then they submit them. But hold on. Now, that person has a conflict of interest. If you have mail-in voting where nobody goes around and collects the ballots and the people handle it themselves, I just voted, now I will deliver it, like, that's, that's okay. But when, as soon as you get groups... Let's harvest all the ballots. Let's get the ballots. Then it's sketchy because you don't know what they're doing. You don't know what's going on. You don't know who they have an allegiance to. Then it gets sketchy. But all you have to do is ban vote harvesting but allow mail-in elections. That's it. Then you're good. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm here in New York. I'm not trying to go into an area where a 1,000 people have been, and if one of them has COVID, the rest of us get COVID. I'm not trying to do that. So, but his theories, man, he, just, he gets an idea in his head. Mail-in voting is, is uh, corrupt full of fraud, and he just runs with it. Well, even Chris Wallace has broken it down. That's simply not true. You want to talk about a fraud, it's trying to exclude voters from exercising their rights, like all of voter ID. You've had Republicans who've admitted that in the past. Like, yeah, we're doing voter ID because we want to stop poor people from voting when they don't have the ID. They, they didn't get the ID, so block poor people from voting, and that's how we do it. So that's the real concern. Voter ID is the real concern. Using private companies' uh, you know, products, that's the real concern. I'm not concerned about mail-in voting. I trust mail-in voting about as much as I trust all other forms of elections in the United States, which is not so much, but it's no worse than any other kind of voting that we do. All right, final story of the day. Elizabeth Warren made a big deal out of not taking big money in the 2020 primary. It was one of her main points that she kept going back to because the argument is, and it makes sense, hey, if you take big money, you're going to represent those big money interests. And those big money interests are anathema to what the people want. So you're either going to represent the people or you're going to represent the big money interest. You can't have it both ways. That's a point Bernie made. That's a point Warren made. Um, and they made it repeatedly. So here's one of those moments I'll show you. This is Elizabeth Warren arguing with people to judge and look at what she says. I do not sell access to my time. 
I don't do full time with billionaires and billionaires. Sorry, as a I don't meet behind closed doors with big dollar donors. And look, I'm taking one that ought to be an easy step for everyone here. I said to anyone who wants to donate to me, if you want to donate to me, that's fine. But don't come around later expecting to be named ambassador. Because that's what goes on in these high dollar fundraisers. I said no, and I asked everybody on this stage to join me. This ought to be an easy step. And here's the problem. If you can't stand up and take the steps that are relatively easy, can't stand up to the wealthy and well-connected when it's relatively easy when you're a candidate, then how can the American people believe you're going to stand up to the wealthy and well-connected when you're president and it's really hard? Well, now, guess what? Elizabeth Warren to hold big-dollar fundraiser for Joe Biden. The online event is set to take place June 15th, according to three people with knowledge of the plans who spoke under condition of anonymity to share the details. She's going to do a big money fundraiser for Joe Biden. There's not a single thing that Elizabeth Warren has claimed to believe in that she won't go back on for perceived political interests. She wants to be vice president, and so she keeps sending out signals. Who bit me? Who me, bro? No, I'm not, I'm not. Like, you thought I was like, all oh, lefty and stuff, bro? No, I totally agree with you, bro. I'm doing it like a mother. I'm doing it like a centrist. I'll do whatever you want, bro. Please seek me. She said the other day, uh, she stopped, she backed off of uh, Medicare for All. Sure, he did that during the campaign, but then she backed off again and went to I think what we really need to do is just expand Obamacare because that's the quickest direct way to help people. By the way, no, it's not. The quickest, directest way to help people is to use tax money and pay everybody's medical bills full stop. That's how you help people. Expanding Obamacare means you're going to make more people buy on the private market, buy their health insurance, when nobody has money because there's a depression. But it's a sign. It's a signal to Joe Biden. Joe, please look at me, Joe. I'll say whatever you want. I'll do whatever you want. I'll have no mind of my own. If you just pick me for VP, I want that position. I need it. I'm a narcissist and a careerist. Yes. Add to my legacy with my name. Yes. That's what this is all about. It's all about careerism. It's all about careerism. She wants that position. She'll do anything to get that position, including going back on everything she claimed to believe in. But that's just the point, guys. She didn't really believe in it. She just convinced everybody that she did. Listen, it it was beyond obvious at the point that it was clear she's not going to endorse Bernie. And here's why I say that. It's not that she owes Bernie anything. She doesn't. She doesn't owe him anything. But if she believes in her platform, which she put on her own website, if she believes in even most of that stuff, it's a no-brainer. You back Bernie. No-brainer. But she didn't do it, which means the policy stuff on her website is just not that important to her because Biden is polar opposite of the stuff she put on her own website. And she didn't pick Bernie over Biden. That says everything to me. That says everything to me. These are just shows. Okay, so you weren't serious about the stuff you claim to believe in. So what do you believe in? Beep, beep, 
believe in any of it. She believes in Elizabeth Warren. She believes in becoming vice president, getting more power. It's all about the narcissism. It's all about the careerism. It's all about the title. She's just like the rest of them, man. She really is. And if you don't see it at this point, I don't know what to tell you. She went back on everything she claimed to believe in. She's like the biggest hypocrite. It's almost like, in some ways, I respect like Klobuchar more. Because Klobuchar never pretended to be something she wasn't. She was always like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I'm a moderate. I'm a centrist. I don't agree with the left. Never did. Never will. And that's who I am. Okay, well, you're being honest. Warren, in an instant, will adopt all of Klobuchar's positions if it means she could get more power. So she pretends to be, I'm me. I'm a lefty, bro. I'm like Bernie, bro. And then immediately to try to be VP. I'll be like, I'll be like Klopp. I'll be like Amy. I'll go to the right of Amy. Do you want me to go to the right of Amy? I'll go to the right of Amy. That's what I'll do. I'll do big money fundraisers. You think I'm holier than that? You think I'm actually against big money? I love big money, bro. Watch here. I'll go do it. The reason why I do not like there are some people on the left are pushing for Warren to be VP. Why? They're doing that with the assumption that she's on the left and she'll advance left wing goals. But she's showing you in no uncertain terms she will not advance left-wing goals. That's not a question now. It's not up in the air. It's obvious. So why would you push for her to be VP? You get no difference from Stacey Abrams, Amy Klobuchar, Gretchen Whitmer, any of them. Any of them. Kamala Harris. There'd be no difference. So what's the point? Why waste any political capital? Why waste your breath? Why? It, she's not going to deliver on any of the things you say you want. What a waste. Total fraud. You want to talk about a character arc that's, that's devastating? She went from being one of the best and most liked senators to now being just unmasked as a total fraud. It's really something to see, man, and very depressing. All right, guys. That's it, baby. Everybody enjoy your Memorial Day. Love you all very much. I'll talk to you soon. Have a good one. Peace.